the practical radical to me is, okay, let's really be serious. What does a 10 and 20, 30 year plan look like? We obviously can't have a blueprint of every step along the way, but we can at least be talking together about some potential plans, scenarios, uh, how to really build our power for the long term. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today, Deepak Bhargava and Stephanie Luce, have written a book called Practical Radicals, which is about political movement strategy. Deepak is a former guest of the show and was for 16 years the head of Community Change. Stephanie Luce is professor of labor studies at CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. They co-taught a course recently at CUNY, which led to their collaboration on this book. If you're interested in a guide to accomplishing social change based on case studies of grassroots movements that have won from two leading community and labor experts, you should definitely listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Deepak and Stephanie about practical radicals. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Deepak and Stephanie, welcome. Deepak, could you just give a quick biography, remind people who might not have listened who you are and just a little background before we talk about your joint book? Sure. Well, it's great to be back on the show. I've been a movement leader and an activist for over 30 years now in a whole variety of different organizational contexts and working on a variety of issues like racial justice, economic justice, immigrant rights. I led community change for about 16 years. And when I stepped down, I joined the faculty of the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies, where Stephanie and I got a chance to work together. I am there through the end of the year. And then starting next year, I take on a new role as the uh, head of the JPP Foundation. And what is JPP? It's a foundation that focuses on issues of justice and fairness. It's a large national foundation, funds all around the country on racial justice, equity, the environment, poverty, whole variety of issues. Have you liked the change that came about with moving to the university? I've loved being in the university in part because I've had such amazing faculty colleagues like Stephanie, and I get to teach these amazing students, both kind of working class New Yorkers and a program that the book really comes out of to work with organizers in social change movements. And so it's been a delight and it's been an opportunity to explore some issues in strategy and vision and, and kind of the longer term progressive 
time horizon that I hadn't been able to do when I was focused on on campaigns at the moment. So it's been really a wonderful experience. It seems like you've been busy because there's the book we're going to talk about, but isn't there also a book on immigration? There is. I co-edited with a couple of other colleagues at SLU at CUNY, uh, a book called Immigration Matters that kind of takes stock of the last couple of decades of immigration movements and the future of the issue and what's a new policy framework to meet the challenge. A pretty frustrating issue and a challenging time for it, I think. We are at a low point in the immigration debate in terms of the level of racism and, and nativism and the brutality that is being experienced by migrants from all over the world, the U.S., but particularly from the Caribbean and Latin America. And it's time for a radically different paradigm to think about who we admit to this country and under what circumstances. And I've written a fair bit over the last couple of years about how we need a much more welcoming immigration policy and, and that that's really the core solution we have to build a social movement around to achieve. That's frankly a little bit depressing right now. Stephanie, welcome to you. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Yeah. So I've been a teacher, a professor at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies for the past 10 years or so and had taught at the University of Massachusetts before that. My degree is in sociology and I've studied labor movements. I work a lot on low-wage worker movements, living wage campaigns, both in the U.S. and internationally. And I've been a labor activist myself. I'm a union member. I've kind of straddled the worlds, I think, of the academic world and the activist world, trying to have a nice home at the Labor Studies program. And CUNY really is a good fit. That's my main background. What's the source of that interest in low-wage workers and unions and things like that? And, and I know in my family, on all four of my grandparents came out of labor or socialist traditions, turn of the last century, immigrants coming over from Eastern Europe or Ukraine. What's the source for you? Yeah. Actually, my mother's family were, were union activists, but I didn't really know that as a child. Um, I only learned later, like my grandfather was in the San Francisco general strike. I didn't really pay much attention, but I came to it in part through gender politics and looking at all the women in my life who my mothers and sisters that did all these low wage service jobs. And myself, when I started to work at my first job, I got paid less than boys. I was a softball umpire. And I was kind of just fascinated with this idea that I wanted to work and have a career, but I thought what was ahead of me was degrading service sector jobs where you dealt with a lot of sexual harassment and discrimination. And that's really kind of where I got interested in work issues. Did you mix the sort of the practical participatory thread with the academic thread all along? Not consciously, but my first job out of college, I got hired to work at the U.S. Department of Labor, studying the impact of the immigration reform law. And that's where I got a bit more formal orientation to labor economics and labor policy. And I realized it kind of really meshed that there was an academic path to understanding my kind of rage around my career choices and the work environment. So I thought that that would be like, I went back to graduate school to learn more about that. What is the sort of what I would call the founding story for this book? It seemed like it involved Chile, but what? how did you guys come together and decide to tackle this, this pretty sizable project? 
The book's origins trace back to a pot of chili at the home of the legendary academic activist, Francis Fox Piven, who, when I was trying to figure out what I would do with the next chapter of my life after I'd left Community Change, invited me over and unbeknownst to me or Stephanie or a third colleague, Penny, invited them too for lunch. And Francis kind of propositioned me to come to the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. And she argued it was a good platform for doing movement work and give me a chance to digest some of the lessons I'd had. And I was super excited about it. And really early on, I think, propositioned Stephanie and a colleague, Penny, to co-teach a class about strategy. And my motivation was that I was super frustrated about the state of strategic practice among progressives. I'd been to many protests that went nowhere, meetings without a clear sense of how we were going to deploy our scarce resources in a disciplined way. I think any progressive can relate to this. And I felt like we can do better. <laughs> we can, and we sometimes do do better. And how is it in a way that we ever win, given the level of resources we're facing from our opponents? And so I really wanted to study that. And I also wanted to study how the right did strategy. And I did not come from a theoretical background at all. And my background is mainly on the community side, not on the labor side. So Stephanie was just kind of an amazing partner to find to go on this adventure. And it was an adventure. Stephanie, what's your version of that? Well, I was so excited that Deepak had come to our school and he had all these exciting ideas. When he suggested this class, I was really intimidated and I felt like I didn't have a notion of what to teach. But I also felt the same level of frustration with him coming out of movement work for many years, decades, and feeling like um, we just weren't you know, getting there in terms of the kind of work we should be getting on the, on the progressive end. And I had, you know, in graduate school, I'd studied a lot of theories of power. I had studied with some, you know, notable academics who I thought had interesting contributions to make. So I thought that, okay, I'll give it a try. We'll see what we can do in this class. And then we did teach the class and it was tremendously exciting. Like the students came together, they were excited to learn from one another. They were excited to learn with us. We were learning, they were learning, and it just was clear that there was thirst for this kind of material and we needed to keep pushing and, and taking it deeper. And eventually Deepak suggested we should do a book out of the class. Was that after the class was over or was that during the class that the book idea came up? We'd run the class a few times with different cohorts and we had the experience of seeing the students light up to see that, oh, there's frameworks. We don't have to just wander our way through the dark to figure things out. And, and that gave me the sense of, well, people aren't being taught their own lineages. They're not being taught, you know, the practices that should be their inheritance. Like we don't have a lot of money. We don't have a lot of assets, but we do have all these lessons from people who came before that should be transmitted and they weren't being transmitted. So that to me was the origin of the book. And it was really an effort to make this wisdom of many generations accessible to today's activists and organizers. I noted that both of you said something about starting the class. Stephanie said she was a little intimidated because there was part of it that was out of her normal realm. And Deepak said there's something 
about it. He wasn't seeped in the theory. And so obviously it seems like a good team. But I'm also just curious about, you get sometimes in life a little comfortable with you're going along, you're writing your academic articles or you're, you're 16 years running an institution and you, you kind of know that space and you're the master of that and people look up to you. What does it take to make a bit of a change in your career, to tackle something together and to tackle something that, that involves having to learn new things? Part of it to me was a sense of existential dread, <laughs> a sense <laughs> that what, what I knew how to do and what I had been taught how to do was so obviously not up to the level of challenges of facing essentially, you know, a fascist movement in the United States, an emergent fascist movement, climate change, et cetera. And so it was partly an admission that we needed to look for other tools and practices. So that was one motivation. Another motivation was like many activists, I kind of went through many different kinds of organizations and had different movement experiences. And I didn't have a language to talk about what was different about them, what was different from the AIDS movement to the immigrant rights movement, to a community organizing group like ACORN, to a political campaign. Like what's the internal logic of them? So some of it was like just really understanding my own trajectory as an activist. And then could these strategies, which often come into conflict, could they be put together? in a different way. That was another kind of big piece of it. Curiosity. Stephanie, what's your swing at that question? <laughs> well, I, I tend to also, I'm uh, kind of a nerd at heart. So if there's ever a chance to learn something new, I kind of tend towards that. And I also tend towards collaborative work because that's really where the joy comes in learning. But I felt the same kind of feeling where like there was you know, so much exciting stuff happening in activist circles that wasn't being written down or shared. And then there was also interesting insights in the academic world. When I had been active in Occupy, in labor, in I've done electoral work, I've done different um, sectors of work, but like Deepak, I felt they didn't really talk to one another. And so it seemed like this opening for this synthesis. And I was also involved in some strategy conversations with other organizers I knew that I thought, you know, overall, as movements, we're, we're ready to invest in kind of a strategy upgrade. And this is the time to start getting more serious. The title Practical Radicals stuck out to me and kind of turned it over my head quite a bit while moving through the book. One, because radical, I think to both of you, is a positive word. And it sometimes is to me. I honor the radicals that have taken us in the right direction at the right time. And there's radicals out there right now on the right that are, that are terrifying me. And sometimes the ones on, on the left get us into trouble. The other part of it is when you add the term practical to it, some radicals will balk at that, I suspect, right away. I think that brings it closer to kind of where I sit, which is like sometimes you have to do the doable, but also sometimes you don't know what is doable and something much more substantial can happen if you don't think you're you're blocked in the way that it appears you are. And that's so much of what social movement is about. And so much about what the strategy is. So t tell me about the choice of, of the title. You named John Lewis as a practical radical at one point, I think. But like, what does that mean to you? And what are you trying to say with that title and saying we need more practical radicals? 
It's a fascinating phrase, even to me now. I think what we're getting at is that there's actually a tradition that isn't even doesn't even necessarily know itself as a tradition of practical radicals. So these are people who really think society needs to change in big ways, right? Not small things, but a plan to really address climate change or really address racism in our society or inequality or whatever topic, and are super honest about what is the power we have, what is the power we need, what are the alliances and compromises that are required along the way? And so it's people like, and, you know, Bayard Rustin has been getting a lot of attention lately, like Bayard Rustin or an Ella Baker, who rolled their sleeves up and did an enormous amount of gritty work while they had a dream of, of freedom and liberation for humans, for black people, but for humanity in general. Part of what motivated me about the book was that pairing of really wanting big change but willing to be disciplined and strategic and honest about power relationships in society is not as common as I want it to be among progressives. You tend to either get people who are the utopians who pretend we can will any reality we want into being if we yell loud enough or protest hard enough, or you get the pragmatists who are like, well, can't pass it through Congress, so why are we talking about it? And there's another path, and in my view, it's the best path of how change really happens. And we wanted to tell that story. Stephanie, the title. Yeah, well, partly to me, it also reflects the worlds I mostly live in, which is it's easy to have the luxury in academia to be a radical and to have big dreams and visions. And that's good. We're not against that. But there's also the it's easy in your activist work to get sucked into the immediate, either the defense fight or the next election or the next contract fight without a long-term vision about how all these pieces stack up. And so I felt often pulled into these two extremes, either big dreams and ideas or very short-term defensive. And the practical radical to me is, okay, let's really be serious. What does a 10 and 20 and 30 year plan look like? We obviously can't have a blueprint of every step along the way, but we can at least be talking together about some potential plans, scenarios, uh, how to really build our power for the long term. Who do you want to read this? When I read it, I don't think it is for an average audience. I think it's for people who share a lot of assumptions with you folks. Who did you aim it at? Stephanie, why don't you go first? Well, first and foremost, to me, it's a textbook for the class that we teach and the students who come to our program. And so these are mid-level organizers who've been doing the work for 10 to 15 years and know their work well, but don't know the broader field and, and are really hungry to learn new ideas and creative ways to think about it. Yes, I think for the most part, we're speaking to people who already share a good deal of our values, progressive values who have been fighting for change, but maybe feel they're in a rut or frustrated, and that this provides some framework to think about how to work together across the sectors and traditions and how to break down some of those barriers that keep us in a rut. Yeah, I would add that, you know, we wrote the book in as accessible a way as we could, because part of my dream would be that grassroots leaders who are members of community groups or unions or other social change organizations could find in it 
practical tools. You know, we have a huge tool section to how to run a campaign or to understand what power is. One of the messages of the book is that strategy actually needs to be democratized, that we do best when large numbers of people are trained in it and participate in it. And so the book is, we hope, also available to a broader set of people who may not even get paid to do social change work, but are active in their communities or their unions or their churches and and want some guideposts on how to be more effective. When I was in college, I took some labor history. When I was in grad school, I took a class in social movements. I think of a pretty historical. I don't think it became clear to me that there were professionals who operated, that there was a discipline, that there was a theory, that this is something that you could spend your life doing, that these movements are not as haphazard as maybe they appear in the newspaper, that a lot of planning goes into place, that what you're doing is part of a, a tradition of people really thinking about it and trying to make change happen. What do you think is the state of the infrastructure of progressive social movements in this country? How are we doing? You know, I think it's the best of times and the worst of times. There are so many bright spots and encouraging signs that we point to in the book. I mean, the fact that through disciplined organizing, you look at the transformation of states like Georgia or Arizona or Minnesota or Michigan, you know, a lot of people did a lot of hard work and planning over a long time to make that happen. And it changed the course of the country. It really did in big ways. Or you think about the upsurge in union activism and organizing and the victories that have been had there or youth interest and activism on climate. So there's so many bright spots. And I think there is not enough attention to building a long-term kind of cross-issue strategy to win, to win governing power, to win hearts and minds. And some muscles have atrophied in our movements, like we talk about how the muscle of disruption is actually really key often to winning big gains. And that's not being used as much, maybe outside of the labor movement in some cases as it needs to be. And there's some innovation happening on the bright side. There's narrative change and new things happening in technology. So it's a very mixed picture. And, and part of what I hope will happen with the book is that it'll give people a way to reflect back on the, the state of our movement not being brutally dismissive, but also not being unduly celebratory, just to be really sober about it and to ask the question, what do we need to build? What connective tissue do we need to build? And I think there's a lot of readiness in our movements to take that critical and appreciative look. Stephanie, we are facing as formidable a right wing right now and as threatening one as we have in a very long time. The system itself is really at stake in a way that I can't remember it being. Do you think that we are poised to defeat that in any way with the people power that's out there? Or do you think that we're in a shambles? Or, or where do you put us in terms of the tools of the movement? <laughs> You're going for the hardest question of all. I would say that anytime I've ever made a prediction about a movement, I was almost always wrong. So I don't want to predict here, but <laughs> I do think that 
we're seeing, uh, again, the best and the, uh, the worst because the right wing is very strong and mobilized and has a lot of assets to work with, but they are also fractured. They have divisions within them. Their alliances are not necessarily holding, and there's a lot of room where they, those alliances may crumble. And we've seen, not just in the United States, but globally, massive, the largest protests in the history of the world over the last decade or so of numbers of people turning out to the streets to defend democracy, to fight for climate justice, to fight for racial justice. Now that hasn't materialized and there's some great interesting new work about why those may not be working as protests, but they do reflect interest and popular opinion about some of those key issues at hand. So that gives me a lot of hope to think about how we might get smarter about channeling that protest and channeling that energy into something more productive. I also get predictions wrong constantly, but it feels to me like if Trump were to win and get a Republican majority in Congress and start going after some of the things he's already been saying, that we would generate then a tremendous amount of energy. It might even be where he then takes the military and applies it to it. You could imagine a lot, a lot of trouble. And if he wins almost all of the goals by all of the different groups that you and I would like to come to fruition are set back or turned in the other way. So why is there not a summit, a movement and beyond most pragmatic to most radical, why can we not get together to say clearly what the threat is? Or are we? Well, that's exactly what we argue is necessary in the book. We believe that right-wing authoritarianism is the existential threat across all issues. And we call for kind of this notion of a popular front, an old left-wing idea of unity of forces who believe in democracy, but don't agree in a whole bunch of other things, not just among progressives, but other forces as well. Yeah, we need like 54% to win for some reason. We do, <laughs> right. The structural obstacles to democracy is like a thing. There are broad sections of the left that really see that. And in my experience, it's not so much where they are on the political spectrum, it's whether they have analysis of power. So there are many very far left people who are absolutely clear they need to make alliances with the center for the objective of defeating the authoritarians. And we'll go back to fighting the center later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or the slightly less left. Exactly. They're yeah. clear, but they have that because they have an analysis of the power situation and they have a sense of history that when the democratic, small D democratic space closes down, the level of violence and fear and harm that is done and, and the effects it has on our ability to organize and mobilize is so profound that it sets oppressed people back a generation. We have the touchstone of what happened at the end of Reconstruction, which is perhaps analogous. And, you know, it was 80 years it took to undo Jim Crow after that fell. So we share that sense of urgency. But I think the key thing is, do you look at every question as purely a question of morality? Like, is this a right or wrong thing? Or are you able to look at it also as a question of strategy? And if you look at it as a question of strategy, you know, there are compromises that are required of you to get to the promised land. 
we cite in one of our chapters Lewis Powell from the famous Powell memo and Lenin and say these are two of our favorite strategy documents. We talk about them. And Lenin's piece, you know, not exactly a milk toast moderate, right? Quite the opposite. This is Lenin. N-E-N-I-N, not N-N-O-N. Correct. <laughs> that <laughs> Lenin. Correct. The communist Lenin. And he wrote a whole tract berating some fellow leftists about their attitude that compromise was betrayal, saying, you have to look at the world you live in. And I think that's our view of the situation that part of the hope with the book is to rekindle that spirit of, yes, we need big changes, and yes, we need to be sober about the realities we face. So, Stephanie, in the book, it has some elements of being textbook-like in the way it's laid out. And you start out with with a theoretical work and the ways to tackle strategy. Could you, for people who haven't read it yet, just quickly summarize what's going on there? Sure. Yeah. The first third of the book is an overview of the framework we use for the class, which is first we talk a bit about what we consider the fundamentals of strategy. We talk about strategy being the way to get from the world as it is to the world as it should be or could be. And so we talk about some of the ways to think about what strategy is. It's a way to make difficult choices. You can do it in different ways from an architect, from doing it from above, or it can come from below, but we talk about what strategy kind of has in common. And then we go through some theories of power, and we come up with six forms and sources of power as a way to understand what we have, what are our assets. We talk about solidarity power, the power to work together, the power to disrupt, economic power political power, ideological power, military power. So we say you need to understand what power you have. If you don't have power, who should you align with or can use one source of power to build another? And you have to understand who are the overdogs in your fight and what power do they have? And then we go into the idea that the power that you have can inform the strategy that you adopt, the strategy model. So if you're working from just basic survival, you just have the power of taking care of one another, then the strategy may start with collective care and a strategy that is based on that kind of solidarity power. Or you may have a solidarity power that allows you to build organizations with one another, such as community organizations or labor unions and so on. So thinking about the sources of power that you have can inform the strategy that you take or you think about how can I get those forms of power? Deepak, each of these different things, you have an illustration from history. One of them is the example of Make the Road, New York, and their accomplishment of getting this excluded workers fund, a multi-billion dollar fund for people who were not part of the welfare system, which seems to me was a remarkable achievement and, and hard to predict that 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 might happen. Just as one example, I'm not going to make you guys go through other ones, but like, could you just relate that and how it fits into the framework and what it tells us? Yeah. I mean, it's an incredibly emotional story because Make the Road New York is a community group that has one of its centers in what was the heart of the pandemic in Queens, New York. And so their members, and they have tens of thousands of members, were experiencing death in their families and loss of income. And it was an existential crisis for immigrant New York, who were often the essential workers we talked about. But those workers were ineligible for pandemic relief. 
they made this incredible decision to go for a big public program, billions of dollars, to provide cash assistance of around $15,000 in the end for undocumented people, which the line, that line has really rarely been crossed, if ever, in U.S. policy. So we look at the question, how in the world did they achieve it? And a core to it was that they had been building over years a mass scale organization of working class immigrants in New York City, in Long Island, and coalitional relationships. They operated from a base of real power. They had real political power, so they helped to elect some people who felt connected to them. And then they had an incredible read of the political moment to understand Governor Cuomo's vulnerability at this particular time. And they seized that opportunity, dramatizing the role of essential workers. But we argue at the core of it is without that mass base that was cultivated over many years of real grassroots leaders in neighborhood after neighborhood, the crisis could not have resulted in that victory. And it's really a testament to what we think there needs to be a lot more of, base building, using solidarity power, the greatest power that underdogs have in our society, the power of numbers. There are more of us than there are of them. It really speaks to that long-term patient commitment that allows you to seize the opportunities when they arise, or in this case, respond to a crisis. A lot of times now, when people on the left are talking about the long-term planning on the right, they cite this Powell memo that came up earlier. And that is a early 70s planning document by the later Justice of the Supreme Court, Powell, who lays out a whole bunch of stuff we don't want to happen. And they work at it. And there's some debate about how much people really referred to that along the way. But nonetheless, there is a document that people can point to. And you have an exercise in your class of suggesting people write the anti-Powell version for nowadays. Tell me a little bit about that. Tell me about what you were looking for from your students, what you would like to see actually spread around and how that would fit into improving the way we make change in this country. Yeah, we emphasize that the Powell memo was not the only memo floating around. Other people had plans, but what it did was lay out kind of a clear sense of an agent. Like Powell was writing to the Chamber of Commerce. He was making an argument that they should organize together as a class and think of themselves as united. They had not really been doing that. And that he has this long-term vision. For him, it's about like saving capitalism and, and fighting communism. And, and then he has really kind of specific ideas. Like these are the institutions we're concerned with what college students are learning and doing. We're concerned with what the media is covering. We encourage our students to do all of these things, to think big picture, what's our long-term fight? Who's the we here? And how can we think about the actual specific agents to carry out a plan? What do they see as the threat? And what are the kind of the tools or the institutions that are critical in that fight to, to win a different vision of society? It's hard to do. We don't ever finish this exercise in the class, but people are very excited about it. They really like combining that kind of big picture and practical thinking in a group exercise. Do they do a good job? Well, to be fair, it, it ranges a bit around uh, across the map, in part because I do think a lot of our students come in 
with narrow visions of hope, you know, like sometimes you ask them to dream of a different world and they'll say things like a four day work week. That's great. But that is like a pretty narrow goal when you think about a 30 year plan. I think that muscle needs to be developed. And I think also it takes a lot of audacity really to say, okay, we think we need to actually control some more media or we need to like go after the courts. That's a real bold play on. And I just don't think a lot of them have been spaces to to do that kind of thinking. Yeah. It's, it is hard to take your mind out of the, the ruts that it's in. And I think even with immigration to imagine flipping this from building fences to figuring out how to welcome people and to integrate people with some kind of joy into our country and solve problems with them rather than view them as vermin or something like that. Every area has that problem, it seems like, every policy area. One of the things that Stephanie really pushed on in the early design of the class that proved just kind of life-changing, game-changing for me was that we had to start with vision. That if you want to talk about strategy, you have to start with vision. And at first I was kind of like, hmm, okay, how practical is that? But then as we got into it, I was like, oh, right. How do you set a 30-year compass if you don't have any sense of the society that you're aspiring to build? And of course, that was the magic of the right. It wasn't just that they wanted to take over media and whatever. They had some ideological goals about what was the world. Immigration is a good example because we will lose forever if we are just against the cruelties of what the current policies are, we can only in a way win if we're painting a vision of what a different alternative could be that's convincing to people. And so it's this funny way where being seemingly impractical or, or going too far is actually, it's actually the practical thing to do. It's necessary to win. And that was one of my own conversion stories, I think, over the course of working on this with Stephanie, the book was to be reminded that we need prophetic vision. There's something implicit in the discussion of social movements in your book and most places on the left that we know what the right thing is and that we're on the side of, of good. And if we go this leftward direction, that it will result in, in better life for more people. But there are other people sometimes stealing or copying or inventing similar tactics who are also often believing that they are going in the right direction, the pro-life movement. How do we know when something that we're putting a lot of chips on, that we are taking risks with changing our country is the right thing to do? We don't lay out a blueprint of everything we think is the, the vision and the plan, in part because we're saying we want to democratize strategy, and that includes democratizing a discussion of values. So starting with more shared space to, to say, you know, what are we fighting for and what are the values that underlie that? And then assuming there will be conflict along the way. Like that's going to be the case, even if we all do share the same values or if we all say we are, you know, we all are for life, what does that actually mean? And so building in mechanisms to deal with conflict. So that's one of our chapters is like, these are the, some of the common things that divide us. And how can we think about having a more generative way of discussing those? And 
if we believe polls anymore, I'm not sure how, if we do or don't, but a lot of polling suggests that on a lot of these issues, there is majority support that if you frame things the right way, if you actually on abortion, like if you say, like, do you want women to be able to control the major medical decisions of their life and so forth? You have a pretty large majority support for a lot of policy decisions. There was majority opposition to gay marriage before there was now majority support of it. And sometimes, and the point often of a social movement is to change that, right? And so you can't rely necessarily on the populace to have it right at this moment. Deepak, what's your answer to that question? Is this something you just know in your gut? Like uh, there's a bunch of people, they're being mistreated. They're the underdog. The other side is the overdog, the malefactors of great wealth or something. How do you think about that? Or is that, or is it too obvious to be asking that question? Well, I think there's some some principles you can kind of bring to that. The racial justice advocate, Brian Stevenson, talks about the importance of being proximate to suffering. And my own experience is that if you are close to people who are dealing with the worst oppression that our society has to offer, that there is really clear truth in that experience and there's real clear direction about what needs to change and that if you bring people together over time especially across identity in our multiracial society that certain consistent visions arise and those are of things that enable people to be free to thrive to live in security to be connected to each other in community that there are actually some deep human universals People may disagree about the policy expression of them and so forth, but all my experience in movement has been that when you get there, when you have that level of conversation about the world as it should be, as we talk about in the book, people really are pointing in the same direction. And it's possible to be wrong. It's impossible to be right and have it go wrong. That right. too. You know, to get backlash and move the move things the other direction is a hazardous game, I think, even if you're so-called crafty foxes. Yes. Yes. And we talk about movement cycles. The reality is that progressives, underdogs lose most of the time. Like most of society is people fighting for justice and losing those fights. And that can be really discouraging, obviously. So there's ways we think you know, to also think about that, to think about where you fit into that cycle. Maybe you're in a downturn and you're trying to keep the, just keep the institution alive until the up, next upsurge. Or how can you think about converting those failures into what the scholar named Eve Weinbaum calls successful failures, that you might lose that battle, but you still build leadership, you build capacity and so forth. So it's true. We should be honest about the fact that a lot of fighting for justice will involve a lot of loss. And maybe one more thing on that is one thing we talk about in the book is the satisfaction of being in movements isn't just about the issue or the win, that people who stay in them for the long term are often staying because the solidarity itself, the community, the love and support they feel from other people is the human experience. It is actually the realization of justice in the here and now, even if you're losing at the moment on some particular issue. And that, I think, gets lost from a lot of discussions about movement life at its best. Yeah, it's funny because I, I've just talked to a Trump supporter who was a MAGA activist 
talked a lot about how that kind of solidarity that he felt with his movement fulfilled belonging needs that he had. And it was only, I think, the relationship that he had with his children and issues around vaccine and DeSantis switching and becoming against it that pulled sort of the wool off his eyes and pulled him out of that movement. Now he's trying to take people off the MAGA side. There's a lot of these things that that work on both sides. Even if I think there are some universal goods, people were being told Hillary Clinton was the end of the country. We're telling them Donald Trump is the end of the country. How does somebody who's not steeped in history or getting the lens that I think to a great degree the three of us share, how do they... How do they make sense of this? Well, so this is a really essential point. We don't derive our views. Most humans don't derive our views from abstract arguments or policy briefs or research and facts. We draw it from being embedded in communities. We talk, for example, about the anti-abortion movement's success, recruiting people who actually were pro-choice into their movement. And how did they do that? They did that because they offered this kind of welcoming space where people felt seen and recognized and felt and heard. And the way that that relates to strategy for us, I think, is the need to build organizations, whether they are unions or community groups or churches, that offer that sense, not just the material benefits like join and you'll get a higher wage, but offer that sense of deep community. And that is what some of the far right movements are really doing successfully. And neoliberalism has atomized us, right? People are isolated, they're alone, they're on social media, they're watching TV. And so like actual organizations where people are bonded together in community is as important or more important than the issues they work on. Stephanie, if you were face-to-face with a activist at some organization, community, neighborhood, political, you name it, someone who you want to read this book, Why ought they read this? What might it do for them? Well, our hope is that it makes them feel more connected to our movement ancestors and traditions and give them a kind of sense of their place in history, as well as feeling connected to other movements and sectors. And so that's one thing is to think about how the work they're doing day to day can sometimes feel isolating or feel like it's hitting a brick wall the book may help them see how they fit into a larger system, a movement ecosystem, that they don't have to do it all. It's not up to them or their organizations to solve everything, but thinking holistically might be a source of comfort for them, as well as an invitation to think big about some some big change, transformative change that might be on their, their grasp or their, their vision, and then some real specific tools like, okay, we have these big dreams, and what are some strategies or actual steps we might take to move us down that path. We're not providing the answer. We're not saying this is the strategy, but here are some tools to get on that path in the right direction. Deepak, anything you want to add to that that you might want to convey to this innocent? I want there to be a whole new generation of crafty foxes, as we say in the book, of people who are in love with strategy because it's super fun. How do we get from point A to point B? What are all the ways? Like, like, can we get my pals together and we're gonna solve this wicked problem? Like that kind of energy of like, we can actually change the world and the 
figuring out how to do it is interesting and challenging and sometimes frustrating, but it is the stuff of life. It's kind of why I titled this podcast, Great Battlefield, taking it from Lincoln, is to some degree we're arrayed against the, through one lens you could see it as the overdog and the underdog, but it's far more complicated than that. And the country is very big and there are so many forces of every different size arrayed in so many different ways. This provides some kind of tool, some kind of way to look at it that helps you figure out where to go forward. And that's what we need to do at this time. Anything else either of you want to say? Really a pleasure to have you both on. Maybe just that it's a really important, exciting moment in history. I know many activists and organizers are feeling a great sense of despair these days about the state of the world. But the way I look at it is probably the future for the next 100 or 200 years gets set in the next 10. And what a great thing to be alive at a time when you have a chance to, to shape it. Any final word from you, Stephanie? This is a great place to end it on. And it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Pleasure's all mine. Those were Deepak and Stephanie. They are at thenewpress.com slash books slash practical dash radicals. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.